doubt can hit you for six. When I was in my early 20s, I got hit pretty hard by doubts. It came from reading some things about bits of the Bible that are tricky to reconcile. It really knocked me around. For some reason, I had the good sense to mention this to a friend from church. Let's call him Roger, that's not his name. Roger is a bloke who's always struggled with doubt. For him, it's not normally intellectual doubt. Is it true? For him, it's been more spiritual or emotional doubt. Has God really forgiven me? Does God really love me? So I mentioned my concerns and questions to Roger. He came out to where I was working. We had lunch. It might have only been once. It might have been a couple of times. It was so helpful. He listened. He understood where I was coming from and was able to point me back to Jesus and suggested some things to think about and other books to read. Uh, It was so good. Not everyone has such a positive experience. Uh, You may be someone who's never had any doubt. Maybe you've had unbelief and had less than helpful responses, people shutting down your questions or being anxious that you'd even ask such a thing. Maybe right now you're not sure what you believe. Uh, You're exploring Christianity or you're a Christian but you've got doubts, whether it's intellectual or spiritual or emotional. Doubts have come over you and, and you're not sure anymore. What do we do when doubts come upon us? Well, today we're going to see how Jesus deals with unbelief. Uh, Last week, we returned to Mark's biography of Jesus. The identity of Jesus has become clear. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of Man who will suffer and rise again. He's the beloved Son of God, as the voice from heaven said, and we should listen to him. Last week, we were up on the mountain with Peter, James and John. We had a glimpse of Jesus' glory. But today, as the four come down the mountain, they crash back to earth. From hearing the voice of God, they come down to hear people squabbling. So this is verse 14, Mark 9, 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. What are they arguing about? We'll find out soon. But the moment Jesus arrives, everything changes. The whole crowd rush to see him. Verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Why are they overwhelmed? Oh, well, it's Jesus, and by this time, stories of his amazing deeds are getting around. And also, I wonder if they'd seen the cloud, maybe even heard something from the mountain. They, they knew something had gone on and wanted to see what it was. Or maybe it's got something to do with the squabble between Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders. Verse 16, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. Now you'd expect, who do you expect to be the first ones to put their hand up? One of the disciples. 
or maybe one of the teachers. I mean, they are leaders, you'd expect. No, a desperate man pushes through the crowd and we discover the tragic reality of the situation. Verse 17, a man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Just moments ago, we were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Christ was dazzling in just a glimpse of his eternal glory. The voice of God himself broke through. Heaven was revealed on earth. But now we come crashing back to the broken, cursed reality. A father who no one, not even Jesus' disciples, could help. A boy robbed of life by a demonic force. Now, before we see how Jesus responds, we're just going to pause because what's going on here? We live in a world where we can see and hear and talk with people on the other side of the globe and have a conversation like they were just in front of us. We live in a world of antibiotics and vaccines And then we open the Bible and we meet someone who can't speak and is clearly distressed and the Bible says it's caused by a spiritual force. What's going on? It's disorienting because of our naturalistic worldview and also I don't think any of us have experienced anything like this, at least not something that we would attribute to an unclean spirit. What's going on? Can we believe this account? Well, first up, we can't write this off as primitive ignorance. Mark knows the difference between illness and demonic activity. In Mark one thirty-two, it says that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Two different things. There's illness and there's being demonised. And even more specifically, in Mark 7, we meet a man unable to hear or speak, but there's no mention of unclean spirits. It's a purely physical thing. But with this boy, an unclean spirit is involved. Not only does the father say this, But we'll see later that Jesus doesn't heal the boy, but casts out the spirit. I don't think this is primitive people misdiagnosing physical situations as spiritual. They know what's happening with this boy is different. What's going on though? Well, let's step back a bit. Let's have a look at the big picture. What do we see in the Bible about people being demonized, controlled, influenced, possessed by spiritual beings or forces? This isn't something we see much, if at all, in the Old Testament. There's only maybe one or two times that anything vaguely like demonization is mentioned. The most well-known is King Uh, King Saul, where an evil or harmful spirit is sent by Yahweh and it distresses him, causes him to lose his temper, even attempt to murder 
young David. Uh, This account raises lots of questions. And there's another incident of a lying spirit in 1 Kings 22. Lots of questions about these two events. But there's two events in the whole Old Testament. As you can see, demonization is barely present there. And then Jesus arrives and unclean spirits are all over the place. In fact, in Mark, the first miracle, chapter 1, the first miracle is casting out an evil spirit. As Jesus travels around, they are all over the place. That's interesting, isn't it? And then in the book of Acts, as the gospel grows from Jerusalem to all Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth, as the gospel goes out, Four times the early followers of Jesus are mentioned casting out spirits. Uh, Two of them are general, a summary that healings and exorcisms occurred. Uh, Two of them are specific individual accounts. Interestingly, these four accounts fit with the structure of Acts. As the gospel breaks new ground, Jerusalem, Samaria, and then with Gentiles, this is when unclean spirits are mentioned. I think there's something to that. And then in the letters, the rest of the New Testament, so we've done Gospels, Acts, then the rest of the New Testament, there's no instructions about exorcisms or the like. What are we to make of this? Well, we need to be a little careful. This is clearly not the main point of the Bible. So we need to be careful not to get distracted by something peripheral. Oh, we also need to be careful not to make too much from silence, particularly the silence of the New Testament letters. They might say nothing about exorcisms because they were so common, it was something Christians were doing every day, so there was no need to write about them. Or there may not be much in that latter part of the New Testament because there's something about the coming of Jesus. If you remember when Jesus was accused of being in league with Beelzebul, In League with the Devil, he tells a parable about robbing a strong man's house. And a stronger man first ties up the strong man, then he can rob the house. A strange parable, we looked at it a couple of months ago. It was a parable of Jesus coming into a dark and fallen world. He is the stronger man and his exorcisms are the beginning of his binding of the strong man. A display of the victory he's going to win on the cross. And so maybe the decreasing prevalence of demons in the book of Acts and the absence of any mention of exorcism in the letters, maybe around the incarnation, as Jesus walked the earth, the spiritual battle became more apparent. And now that Christ has conquered, the demonic has slithered back into the shadows. This may be why the situation we read about today of Jesus and this boy is so strange to us, so foreign to us. But it's still a possibility. Uh, The accounts of the Gospels and Acts show demons are real. But we shouldn't go looking for demons under every rock or misdiagnose physical and mental affliction as needing exorcism. Yes, we pray. But also, we give wise medical care because we are creatures living in God's creation. So that's our big pause. Let's get back to Jesus at the foot of the mountain. 
uh, the disciples, uh, the father disciples, the teachers of the law, they knew this was an unclean spirit, no doubts about it, but also they could do nothing about it. Which frustrates, maybe saddens Jesus. Verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Uh, who's Jesus talking about? Who's the unbelieving generation? It could be, I beg your pardon, it could be everyone. That's just a statement about life in a fallen world. This boy is a reminder of the spiritual darkness of this age. Jesus might be specifically thinking of his disciples. Back in chapter 6, Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel and it says they also cast out demons. But this day, while he was up the mountain, they were unable. But now Jesus is here. And they bring the boy to him. And the situation only gets more desperate. Verse 20. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. The father warned us of this, but as it happens here in front of Jesus, it's confronting. You can imagine the crowd pulling back, some gasping in horror. But not Jesus. He calmly talks to the boy's father, wanting to know him and and his heart and the story. Verse 21, Jesus asked the father, the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Why does Jesus ask the question? I don't think it's an interrogation. Maybe it's so we know the spirit didn't come because of some great evil. Maybe it's so we know how desperate the father is. He's seen this spirit attacking his little boy causing him grief and harm. So far, no one has been able to help. And in his desperation, he's come to Jesus, who maybe, just maybe, can help. Verse 23. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. If you can, Jesus said. How do you think he said those words? Do you imagine Jesus is frustrated like verse 19? I don't. Because of how he goes on to say everything is able and how the story pans out. I don't think Jesus is rebuking. He's encouraging and comforting the father. Yes, you're desperate. You've come to the right place. And the father is somewhat encouraged. Encouraged enough to keep asking Jesus for help. Verse 24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. It's the second time the father's asked for help. First time it was help us, help our situation. But now it's deeper, help my unbelief. The father is so self-aware, he knows himself that his faith is mixed with unbelief. 
Yet the important thing is, the faith he has is directed towards Jesus. The faith he has has brought him to Jesus. The faith he has leads him to beg Jesus for help. He's not afraid to admit his need, his need for help, even his unbelief. The father believes, but it's mixed with doubt. But significantly, the determining factor isn't so much the mix of unbelief and belief, but who he's asking for help. Because the faith he has is in Jesus. Because he's come to Jesus to help and Jesus is able. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. The spirit protests, put on a show, but Jesus, he's been the same this whole encounter. Jesus is calm. He's calm because he's the beloved son of the father. He's calm because he has authority over all things, even over this corpse-like boy. Verse 27, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. We don't know if the boy was clinically dead or if he'd just fainted. And it's obscure, but it's obscured a bit in the English. But verse 27 is full of resurrection language. Even if the boy isn't dead, in the context of what Jesus has been saying, two times already he said that he's going to be killed and on the third day rise again. This moment with the boy is a foreshadowing, a taster, a warm-up for what's going to come. It's a thumbnail preview of Jesus' authority and power. His coming victory over our great enemies of Satan and death. Jesus is the stronger man. But the disciples still don't really see. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. What does Jesus mean only by prayer? Did you notice verse 25? Jesus didn't pray. He just spoke. Then again, he is the son of the father. When the 12 were sent out on their mission, they were able to cast out spirits, maybe just speaking like they'd seen Jesus do. But here, maybe they'd forgotten the one who had authority. In their arguing with the teachers of the law, it became about pride and power. Did you notice the question they did ask? Why couldn't we drive it out? 
Maybe they'd forgotten where the authority really lay. It had become about pride and power, about what they could do instead of what Christ could do and relying on God. They didn't pray. They didn't ask, just as they didn't ask Jesus to explain what he meant about dying and rising. Once again, the disciples are failing to follow Jesus. The Father is a model of discipleship. Desperate, empty-handed, he asks and asks for help. He knows his faith is mixed. And so he comes to Jesus and Jesus mercifully rescues and raises his son, helping his unbelief. But the disciples, I think in their pride, are too afraid to ask which sometimes we are too. When we doubt, when we have questions, too often we carry this burden alone. For some reason, maybe it's pride, maybe fear. We're like the disciples. We don't want anyone to know, to know our doubt, to see our weakness. But there's no need to hide. We see Jesus answers the cry, help my unbelief. That's why church is the safest place for doubters. It's not the safest place for doubt because Jesus will answer the prayer. Maybe by showing his merciful power, maybe through the encouraging and supporting words of friends in Christ, maybe through questions being answered. It's not a safe place for doubt, but this is a safe place for doubters. In Jude verse 22, it says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Jesus is merciful to the doubting father. He was merciful to the afflicted son. Jesus will be merciful to us who doubt too. But Jude wasn't writing to Jesus. He's writing to Christians like us. We're told to be merciful to those who doubt. How do we do this? How can our church be a good place for doubters? Well, we're not going to be surprised by doubt. It seems to come on most of us and at the most unexpected times. So it doesn't shock or disappoint us. We're also merciful by not fueling or entertaining doubts. Uh, There has been times, there's probably churches, where doubt is trendy. It's celebrated as being vulnerable or authentic. And although I think we should celebrate those who are vulnerable, who, who say what's really going on, who open themselves up, who ask the questions that are weighing on their hearts, but we show mercy not by celebrating doubt, but by giving truth. Gently, not condescending or patronizing, but answering questions as we're able. But we need to recognise, though, that doubt is not just intellectual. Maybe it's not even often intellectual. It's not just about questions. We show mercy to doubters every Sunday, I think. The act of gathering as God's people, where we hear one another sing gospel truths. 
as we praise God together, as we hear stories of God's kindness in other people's lives, as we hear each other's prayers and hear people pray for us, that's showing mercy to those who doubt. It encourages us. As we see our grandparents in the faith, those who've followed Jesus for decades of ups and downs, and the newborn believers who are full of the thrill of discovering freedom from sin, guilt and shame. All of us gathering together are mercies for those who are doubting. If you're struggling with unbelief, be at church. If you're full of faith, be at church. The Lord Jesus has great power. Authority over evil spirits and even death. He has great power. But he's also gracious and kind. He takes time to listen to our doubts and answer our prayer. Help our unbelief. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus, we know you are able to do all things. You are able to help our unbelief. You are merciful to those who doubt. Please do that. Please help our unbelief strengthen our faith today. Please may our church be a good place for doubters. Help us be merciful to those who doubt, encouraging and strengthening them in the faith, speaking the truth of the gospel, answering questions, telling your story, sorry, telling stories of your kindness to us. Use us to grow, mature, and strengthen those who doubt. For those who don't know where they stand with Jesus, who are not sure how mixed their unbelief and faith is, may you draw us closer to yourself that we might come to know the authority and gentle mercy of Christ. Amen.